Readings Podcast, where readings booksellers talk to writers about their work. My name is Nina Kenwood, and I'm the Marketing Manager at Readings, and I'm co-hosting today's podcast with Christine Gordon, our Events Manager. Hello. Today, Chris and I are talking to two Australian authors about their new books, Bridget Delaney, author of Wellmania, and Jenny Valentish, author of Women of Substances. Hello. Hello. So Bridget's book, Wellmania, is an examination of the wellness industry, looking at everything from diets to yoga and meditation and testing a variety of things that are supposed to make us clean, lean and serene. Jenny's book, Women of Substances, is an investigation into the female experience of drugs, alcohol and substance addiction, using her own story as a framework. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Bridget, I thought I'd start with a question for you. Can you tell us a little bit about the wellness industry and some of the personal experiences with wellness you write about in your book? Okay, so the wellness industry globally is is huge. It's it's a multi-billion dollar industry um, and it encompasses everything from day spas to yoga to things like Gwyneth Paltrow's website, Goop, which does supplements what and do we vitamins. Think uh, to be taken with a pinch of Himalayan salt. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but it's um, it was an industry that I started exploring about 12 years ago and, and it has grown massively ever since and I've been writing a lot about it in various publications around Australia and I thought that my experiences could be sort of brought together to make, to make a book. And so the quest for wellness is a very female journey. Um, Meanwhile, addiction is very different for women and men. Jenny, what role does gender play when it comes to addiction and wellness? Oh, it's pretty huge. So if you get to the problematic end of the spectrum with drugs and alcohol, that's when it becomes more noticeable. So um, somebody who would uh, seek treatment, um, if she was a woman, Uh, has generally gone through some kind of trauma by that stage, you know, whether it's a childhood trauma that um, then sort of she self-medicated or self-soothed for, or whether it's accumulated along the way um, from heavy use, there tends to be that experience. So there really needs to be um, trauma-focused care and gender-sensitive care, which is what the call to arms is at the end of the book. So that's just something that you haven't seen at all when you've been doing all this research, that there doesn't seem to be anything that's very specific to women? Not enough. Yeah. Um, there are there are treatment, um, treatments that are trauma-focused and gender-sensitive, but hardly any um, places are using them. And if, it tends to be from therapist to therapist, counsellor to counsellor, so they might kind of use some of those skills within their sessions. So what we really need is um, to see things like um, inpatient services, like rehabs, uh, utilising proper programs. Because mm. just last night somebody was telling me she's been to um, four rehabs and she was expected to share um, sexual trauma with an entire mixed group oh, or get awful. out. Because it was that kind of 12-step mentality of we all have to be very open. Mm. But she didn't feel safe doing so. No. And you have a great chapter in your book where you talk about women's cycles mm. and their hormones and how that is very particular to substance abuse. If you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, actually. I mean, I don't think women are aware that 
alcohol in particular has a massive effect on your levels of estrogen. So even just having um, one drink a day will, will vastly increase your um, chances of getting breast cancer. Um, but also wherever we are in, I'm sorry, I know it's bad news week here. Uh, wherever we are in our cycle affects um, how we respond to drugs and alcohol. So for instance, if we're releasing a flood of estrogen, we're more sensitive to the effects. If we're releasing progesterone, we're kind of not so anxious to get high or, or drink. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there is that terrific line somewhere in your book where it says, if you've wondered why sometimes you, it only takes one beer or something to, to lay you out. Yeah. This is one of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So you can you can monitor that, you know, you can be proactive if you, if you don't want to <laughs> give up the booze and why should you then just, you know, be mindful of where you are. So while we're sort of talking about the science of things, Bridget, can you talk a little bit about the science of wellness and what you've sort of seen around research and are these things that you were testing and trying in your book based in science? Um, no, they weren't based on science. They, <laughs> they were. Based... It was your 101 day fast <laughs> based in firm science. Absolutely not. So there's a big gap between um, what traditional medicine says and what, say, wellness blogs say about things like fasting. And I was really interested in that gap because um, the fasting community, and there is a fasting community who blogs about about like detoxing and going without food. Um, believes that if you start to feel unwell at around five or six days into your fast, it is your body getting rid of toxins. Now, I presented that um, that idea to uh, several professors of internal medicine and um, endocrinology, and they said that's absolute bollocks. It's your body in complete pain crying out for food and nutrition um, it's not a healing crisis, and it's a sign that you should start eating. So, <laughs> there's there's really there's a really big chasm between what um, the wellness gurus say and what the traditional people say. And people like Gwyneth Paltrow are in the firing line from traditional medicine when she prescribes supplements um, to give people energy or a better sex life or to metabolize food faster. Um, you know, those things can cause damage. Or if they don't, they're just a very expensive, um, you know, way to colour your urine. It can get really dark, that stuff, can't it? You know, you get those gurus like Bell Gibson. Bell Gibson, loads, sort of thing Loads of, of people yeah. I can think of, and not quite think of the names right now, um, who are advising things that could be potentially fatal. Yeah, or well, treating cancer through the alternative yeah, methods. Yeah, and Ian, that guy, Living Ian a clean life. Mm. Even Pete those, Evans, even. Mm. Uh, people who just eat bananas, the banana. Yeah. People just, who eat, just eat bananas. Yes. There's a great Portlandia sketch about that, actually. Mm. I recommend people look it's that like up. 100 bananas a day, 50 bananas a day. I don't know that one because I've never had a banana in my life because I don't like the smell, so maybe I've got a banana deficiency. <laughs> but I did interview some um, dietitians for the book and... One of them said that she's now starting to see people who've um, who describe come in and describe themselves as I'm paleo, like it's an identifier, mm-hmm. and they're wanting to have a baby or they're wanting to, um, you know, they're feeling quite unwell and they're missing all these sort of um, these hormones and minerals in their body because they've cut out entire food groups for no particular reason, mm-hmm. and you see that in the rise of people going gluten free who haven't actually been diagnosed with a particular um, food-based disorder. 
So a lot of it is about um, it's connected to the rise of Instagram celebrities and people um, holding themselves up as being paragons of of wholesomeness, health, um, beauty, and that aesthetic is now becoming the dominant aesthetic that a lot of women are beholden to. Right. So when you mentioned Instagram then, I just want to talk about the performative nature of mm. wellness and how that sort of, do you think it's sort of social media is driving it or is it just human nature to be, to want wellness anyway or what about the performative nature of it? Well, I think wanting wellness is as old as human beings themselves. I mean, we've always tried in some respects to live forever, whether that's through religion offering each other, offering us, you know, eternal life or, you know, people did fast back in the olden days to to get better and to stay well. But the, so that's always been there. But the performative aspect is, um, is interesting. A lot of the young women on social media um, are very thin, but they... They talk about themselves as being lean and as, as as having sort of yoga toned arms and so being kind of thin just for the sake of it's out, but being healthy is is a far more socially acceptable. And um, well, looking that, healthy, looking healthy, and there's a hashtag called clean eating, which is very sort of weird to explore on Instagram, and it's it's all these you know people with punnets of blueberries and. Um, Banana, you know, no, no such thing as sandwiches, but maybe weird banana, oatmeal, porridge things. Um, <laughs> and they look very skinny, but, you know, people do hide their eating disorders behind this clean eating sort of hashtag and movement. It's orthorexia, it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So it's all about control, one would yeah. think. I mean, this is what it all boils down to, one would have thought. Yeah, people not wanting to have toxins enter their body, mm. you know, being, being terrified of of toxins, which I think that's, you know, that's why it's interesting, I guess, to look at Jenny and my book together because of the role that these toxins play. You know, half of the country seems to be shoving as many toxins down their throat as as quickly as possible. And the other half are, you know, terrified of, of anything <laughs> of that resembles a toxin. And, and there's a very kind of disordered yeah. way of, of existing at the moment. Do you, do you feel like that we've lost the sort of middle ground? Do both of you feel like that, that where, where it's just... Yeah, it's, it's extremes, isn't it? Like there's a bar, I think it's in London, called Detox Retox, or is mm. it Retox Detox? Yeah. Either way, anyway. I like it already. Yeah, <laughs> so it's detox. like, you know, it's one or the other, you, you, you know. You, you have to sort of swing to the other end of the extreme to sort of get that sense of balance rather than exist in the middle. What can you get at that bar? Can you get bananas? <laughs> <laughs> this is what you get. Uh, I think it's probably sort of healthy cocktails, you know, with herbs and stuff like that. It's still a big doll for vodka. Mm. So on the flip side of the performative nature of wellness, do you think there's an aspect in performative nature of like going out and having a big night and showing your fun and crazy life on social media that is somehow tied to... Uh, substance abuse or drinking or anything like that? Not as much now. Um, definitely, like, so I'm, I'm English, so, you know, we it's a culture of slamming back tons of shots. And when I used to go out with my mates, we we used to take 
little Polaroid cameras and just take loads of photos of us falling into bushes and doing shots and things. But now, you know, as we've just discussed, it's more about thinspiration and like curving your body into a really bizarre shape for the Instagram picture, some kind of S-bend S- shape. Um, and Did you say I've been doing that for years? <laughs> Not on purpose. But yeah, you don't often see drinks in pictures now. Um, I think MySpace, maybe that was more messy, was it? Mm. Drinks in I think them. the last time I saw a drink in a picture, which I loved, was actually after the um, terrible events at London Bridge, the terrorist attack, and there was an English guy fleeing the terrorists holding a full pint glass. Um, so, And he became the symbol of the whole <laughs> yeah. sort of... He, did, he yeah. became a bit of a pride. hero. It's British yeah. pride. You know what, that's right. Like, the world might be falling around, down around you, but yeah. listen... Yeah, we've still got time for a beer. <laughs> I saw a video today of, it was again in England in Reading and a guy got hit by a bus that was out of control and he got sort of hit 20 feet uh, and, and he got straight to his feet and then just walked into a pub. And so that's oh. sort of gone a bit viral, whereas actually, in actual fact, the truth of it is he he walked into a doorway where he'd be safe and sat down. But yeah, it's that kind of British Dunkirk spirit, isn't it? <laughs> you know? you can keep a pint without spilling it in the face of an emergency. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about class and wealth. Bridget, is wellness just for the rich? Absolutely. Um, It's very expensive to buy these products. So organic food, um, food that's from your farmer's market, uh, food that has um, an ethical supply chain is very expensive. Uh, Yoga classes are now getting around the $30 mark. For a casual class, um, yoga leggings, hundred and five dollars. So, so, can you explain what that is? Active wear. Active wear. So, I'm athleisure. Lululemon. Lululemon. Lord of Jane. All these brands um, that are essentially just stretchy pants that you could buy much cheaper at Kmart or Target. Um, they're you know a hundred bucks to for these special yoga pants. Are they you, wicking pants? I don't know what they are. Uh, I don't know. I, I will. <laughs> say, say, I wear a lot of active wear. I do wear a lot of active wear, and I do. Uh, do Do you know immediately what? Of what, course, yeah, 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 yeah. I wear well Nike, Lululemon, whatever. And you must be like, really rich. Yeah, <laughs> well, she works in the book industry. Rich, so yes. She's loaded. <laughs> <For a> book <laughs> job. Um, so yeah. yeah, so there's a lot of. Um, you need a lot of cash um, to feel and look virtuous, and. Um, also, retreats are massive business. Like they're to go on yeah. retreat in Southeast Asia, where you know you spend one or two weeks doing a lot of yoga, eating healthy food, and being introspective, can cost around two and a half grand, um, which is a lot of money. So mm. it's a it's a very middle class slash upper middle class uh, thing. But like any trend, it does trickle down and. It becomes something that people will save up to have mm. to get a yoga pass, or they'll save up to, um, you know, they mightn't buy lunch, but they'll, they'll spend that money on a green juice. Some of the uh, health insurance companies are sort of buying into all of this, aren't they? Have you mm. have you noticed that? You think that's making it all increase? You think there's more people involved because of that? I think if someone says, oh, we'll give you a free massage if you sign up to this expensive health cover, yeah. part of me thinks, oh, yeah, I'd love a massage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or the gym membership yeah. things and they're doing that now. And yeah. And all of that stuff. So, so my book doesn't bag um, healthy living. In fact, I'm, I'm a big supporter of um, being fit, being active, eating well. Um, however, 
we're starting to see it split along class lines, which is if you're poorer, you're more likely to be obese, less fit, less likely to have the um, accessories that are very expensive, like Fitbit, less likely mm. to join a gym. Um, so if governments want to do anything about obesity, then they've got to look at, at how these things are priced um, and make it a bit more accessible to everyone. The thing I found pertinent in your book was, so you talk about doing the basically the starvation diet, mm. um, which in theory should cost nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but not only does it cost a lot of money, but you have to go in, was it every day, mm. and get acupuncture and massages and stuff. So it's also, you'd also have to take, what, two hours off work? Well, I couldn't work. work up. So just for, for people um, curious about what we're talking about, I did a fast at... Um, that Eddie Maguire has just recently done. Wow. Um, There's some endorsements. <laughs> Eddie lost 15 kilograms in two weeks. Malcolm Turnbull's done it. And but, I did but have it. they put it back on? Turnbull hasn't. Um, Eddie's just finished the fast. So we'll I, put, I put all the weight back on. So I'm not a good ad for, for that fast. But it costs thousands of dollars. There's no... Um, no food allowed. You have to go to the clinic each day and get weighed and get uh, acupuncture. And I was so fatigued that I couldn't work. So I spent most of the day lying in bed, feeling very um, unhappy and unwell. So, so can I just say, so you've signed, you've, the average sort of punter has come along, they've spent $2,000, they've signed up for something where they're going to come and see people every day for, and they're not going to eat any food. Yep, they're not going to eat anything. You're going to drink? You're going to drink Well, you get special herbal drinks. Yeah. Yeah, for two weeks. And you felt at one point you thought you were having a heart attack? Yeah, so I woke up in the middle of the night with my my chest feeling like it was being electrocuted, like um, just over near my heart. What day was that? That was about day five. I Googled, (laughs) is this a heart attack? I put in the symptoms and it happened again a bit further down the line and I consulted my GP and then was taken off the fast. Um, but when I was writing the book, I spoke to um, an expert who said, well, that was actually your body being so hungry that it was eating its own heart muscle. Oh. And <laughs> the wellness blogs say, no, it's not that. It's it's your body just cleansing itself of its toxins. So that's where these things get dangerous, when you are actually probably about to have a heart attack, but you think you're doing your body something, you know, you're giving it a wonderful kind of treat. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a court case, uh, it's about two years ago, where a woman went on a similar fast while she was breastfeeding and her baby ended up almost dying. And she was charged with attempted, I think it was either manslaughter or attempted murder or something. It was very serious charges because the court didn't recognise that this fast was was a good thing you know they they just saw it as being uh, a form of starvation and um yeah so jenny back to while we're talking about class and wealth how does that relate to um recovery from substance abuse and is that does that weigh in on your ability to go into recovery yeah well you've got a few options really so you, you can go to aa or na which is free um, and you, you can, in theory, do that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a maintenance kind of program. But if you immediately need some kind of help, um, well, you'd have to pay for it, really. Mm. Unless you know, to go to get free help to get so to go to a government-funded rehab, you're going to be on a waiting list. Um, and particularly if you're a woman, say, with children, 
you might have a very, very small window of opportunity where it's possible for you to get help because there might not be someone suitable to care for your children. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. Um, people who've gone to rehabs that I know tend to have um, had, had it paid for by parents. Yeah, it's not an even playing field. Now, to the writing of your books. Um, Jenny, I'll start with you. What was it like? Your book's quite personal, quite intimate. What was it like to write such a, sort of to reveal so much of yourself in what is essentially part memoir, part um, I research, guess, yeah. yeah, study? Um, it was awful. <laughs> um, I haven't really done it before. So I've always been a journalist who profiles other people, holds up a mirror to other people, reflects them back at themselves, um, which was starting to get on my nerves. I felt like I had important things to say. But to sort of dunk yourself in the deep end to this extent was really difficult. But it was a cause I really believed in. I thought if you're ever going to do it, it should be about drugs and alcohol and um, women's role with them. Uh, but... Um, it was difficult right from the start because there's a lot, of, a lot of guilt because you don't just write about yourself, obviously. I mean, even if you didn't mention family at all, th- then there'd be all sorts of implications. So I had to find a device of how to write about family in a way that I felt was um, that had a duty of care. And that was to write about the temperament of my family because temperament is a, plays a big part in... Um, who is likely to become dependent on drugs and alcohol and who isn't. So that was my device um, when it came to writing about family. But that kind of guilt stayed with me the entire book and also rage, you know. Um, it sort of brought up a lot of anger and anger is, um, I think anger and shame are the two driving forces behind people's problematic drinking and drug use, really. So those things came back with a, a vengeance. Mm. Um, and you know, writing any books very isolating. You can't. There's no point really keeping people like you know partners briefed on how it's going because it's an entire <laughs> universe and they can't see it. So it's like talking about um, a, a dream you had. So it's just boring for the other person really. Um, so yeah, it's very isolating and um, lots of behaviour patterns were coming up when I was writing. Like I was smoking a lot and watching a lot of porn or spending a lot of money. Um, in cycles, you know, and then you notice something's happening and you nip it in the bud and then something else happens. So all these kind of coping mechanisms came into play um, over about a 14-month period, I would say. So I was quite exhausted by the end. Plus yeah, it was fueled by it was fueled by caf- caffeine, nicotine and modafinil. Um, <laughs> <laughs> As all great books are. Yeah, um, and which I am prescribed. <laughs> but I it just it. meant that it was I was quite strung out, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> appropriately I do actually think that's incredibly appropriate yeah and, and that that becomes part of one of the chapters as well like is this appropriate oh, I don't know this is a bit of a quandary you've kept your humour throughout yeah how did you do that I, uh, mean- I couldn't there was only one period of my life which was when I quit drinking that mm-hmm. I lost my sense of humour for about a year which was awful it was like it so had just what, been so sucked mean? out with a straw yeah, right Nothing was funny anymore. Yeah. Like, I think when things go badly wrong, when you are perhaps on benders all the time, it's kind of like the best of times and the worst of times, and there is a real humour in it. If you, you know, if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Though when I stopped drinking, that kind of roller coaster stopped and abruptly evened out, and everything was kind of beige and boring. Everything was fine. At first, before I sort of regained my personality. Um, 
but but you know I've definitely got that humour back now and I've always used it as a defence mechanism um, it's a gallows humour yeah yeah I so, like it yeah it's not just employed for the book I would use it all the time yeah 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 it's cool and what kind of um, feedback have you gotten on the book so far? I know it's just come out, but yeah. are you hearing, like, what, how are people responding to it? Yeah, it's been out uh, nearly a month. Um, at the launches, I had a few launches around the country, um, people were really engaged when I was talking. Like, they were talking back as I was talking sometimes. Sometimes a few people were drunk in the audiences. Um and it was great because, you know, I've done things like um, moderate music industry panels before and you look out at the audience and everyone's impassive and got their arms folded. But people are really, really engaged in this. And afterwards, you know, it turns into a bit of an AA meeting in, in question time. People start sort of talking about their experiences. Um, I've had a lot of people write to me. Um, Do people want to... Uh you to measure their sort of drinking whether to measure it yes in the sense of like or their sort of drug use they say so jen i've you know drinking oh, every night do you think this is something that i should be looking is at this is like it a is real that... question within a question <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with me oh <laughs> uh, no i don't i don't think so it's um often i get um parents talking to me about uh, their, yeah, their children that they're really yeah. worried about um, other times it's people talking about their use, but I think they know whether it's a problem or not. They're not looking for validation. Um, it's more that fear of stopping, you know. It's a huge thing to do, particularly if it's alcohol, because what's left, you kind of think, you know, like every social aspect of my life might disappear and there's a fear that you'll lose your identity. So I think it's more based around that kind of thing. And Bridget, you also, your book is also quite intimate um and you talk about yourself a lot you obviously you're very much in there how was the that experience for you um it, it was fun actually uh, when I started writing about the wellness industry an editor I worked with said you're like the Hunter S Thompson the gonzo journalist of of wellness and I thought well that could be actually a device that I take with me into a longer project such as this book so I can go into an industry that takes itself very seriously, um, that has a lot of cash and capital and cachet behind it. And I can do these things and pull it apart a bit and have a bit of fun, uh, sometimes at my own expense. Um, I thought quite often yeah. when I read your book. I mean, it, it's laugh out loud moments. Yeah, I wanted it to be funny because I think it makes, yeah, if, if you're just reading about someone's diet for, you know, 150 pages, it could get very dull. But if you're talking about, like, you know, how you smell when you go on the diet and mm. how sometimes your tears even smell bad and um, <laughs> all this, the weird stuff that comes out of your body, it can be it can be very funny and it, it can make the book a, a bit livelier. Um, I'm also a journal keeper, so I've been keeping journals for years. So a lot of the experiences I had over the, the last 12 or so years in the wellness industry, I was able to refer back to journals and stories I'd written conversations I'd recorded uh, and so there is a sense of immediacy in the book because there'd been quite kind of strong record taking over the time. Amazing. Actually how long did the whole book take altogether? Well I started exploring the industry in 2005 um, 
I went to a Benedictine monastery in um, Western Australia and I spent um, some time in silent retreat there and it was it was pretty bad. I didn't last very long. Um, but that, that set me on the path. And then I, I moved to London and I worked for CNN as a um, luxury spa correspondent. Oh, so I, I was going to <laughs> what a um, job. places like the Mandarin Oriental every day for various reflexology treatments or, um, but, you know, strange baths with rose petals. I once um, had a, a massage from um, Nelson Mandela's masseuse so there and was how, how would you rate that massage it was 10 out of 10 yeah it yeah. was it was fantastic so I was having all these experiences but I was also asking sort of bigger questions of myself like I'm not religious anymore but you know how do I find spirituality or meaning and um you know is kale really good for you or is it just a marketing thing like there was all these things that kind of I could lump into this industry um and so, yeah, it, it was it was fun to write. I wrote the book quite quickly, like maybe about took less than a year. Um, my last book took eight years to write. Um, but I wrote this so quickly I got um, RSI, which was not good to be unwell when you're writing a wellness book. Uh, <laughs> so we both <laughs> suffered from that. <laughs> yes, yes, it was terrible. Um, but, yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, just to wrap up, a question that we always ask mm, is so tricky. Can you tell us about a book that you're reading and loving, or maybe a TV show that you've been watching and loving, or music, or some, or all three recommendations that you can give? Oh my God, what an amazing question to ask at this point. <laughs> um, I've just been binging Master of None's second season, which mm. I love. Um, I don't have a TV, and I'm house sitting for friends in Sydney, and they have. Netflix and I've just been watching every single episode back to back. Each episode is so different, like some are black and white, set in Italy, others are, you know, like um, told from a different character's perspective. And there was this amazing episode on unrequited love that I saw recently that had this final shot in the back of a cab where the main character has just dropped off this woman that he's got the hots for, but nothing's going to happen. And they play this soft sell song for the like four minutes and it's just a shot of him in the back of this uber looking really sad and i was like i've been there that's <laughs> you know and it's it's different sort of television and i really appreciate the kind of craft behind that series i've been watching glow on oh. netflix i just finished it amazing so it stands for Glamorous Ladies of Wrestling and it was a real series in the 80s and Jackie Stallone was in it and even Sylvester Stallone Is made Jackie a few appearances. The mom? She's the mum, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was real budget chicks wrestling um, in skimpy leotards. Um, and so now Netflix has done like a dramatization of how that all came to be. It's always out of work actresses who are desperate for gigs and. Um, you know, they're, they're being trained up and it's all shot kind of like, you know, Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun video. It's very kind of bright pastels and over the top fashion. It's all like that. Uh, and I did a bit of wrestling training when I stopped drinking, actually. I did it for about, <laughs> really? yeah, I did it for about four or five months. And so the stage that they're at at the end of the series is the stage I got to. So I can recognize all the moves and the holes <laughs> and stuff. It's really exciting. It makes me want to do it again, but I'm 42 and my bones will dissolve into <laughs> they powder. Won't, they won't. Yeah, but They're the thing fine. is, wrestlers tend to be very young. So I, I realised when I was training, 
after a while, oh my god, I'm I'm grappling with eighteen year old boys and they just look bigger. They look older. <laughs> but you know, the conversation when we were sort of off duty would be about working in coals and yeah, school right. formals and I started to feel a bit inappropriate launching myself <laughs> at them. Fun as it was. I'm so sure stopped. they'd love it. I don't know. I felt so like they were like, it. Oh god, so here comes grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Well, with that, we will finish. Um, thank you so much to you both. Yes, thank uh, you. And I encourage everyone listening to go out and buy both books. That's Well Mania and Woman of Substances. And they're both available now at Readings. They're both tremendous exposés, really, aren't they? Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.